even when we're facing issues that seem really negative, we end up with hope. Hope is always the final say in God's Word. So let's dive into the subject. The first one, the America in Bible prophecy. We need to start back at the founding of America. Uh, early in this nation's history, European travels came, came to North America that was pretty much inhabited by Native Americans at the time. And by the late 1700s, what had become 13 colonies was subject to British rule and British taxation, but no representation in the British Parliament. And so as a result, in, the, in 1776, the United States declared independence from Britain. And of course, there's all kinds of things that were happening around that time. And, and the 13 colonies themselves had about 3 million people uh, that, that lived there at the time. And there's some estimates that we're not exactly sure about how many Native Americans lived in the United States, but, but we know about 3 million people lived in the colonies. The final draft of the Declaration of Independence was completed by Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, and it was voted on July 4th, 1776, by the Continental Congress that the United States would be a free and independent nation. The Declaration begins this way. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and then the, the following sentences are some of the most beautiful language in modern history. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Liberty, that idea. What's the core of liberty? Personal freedom, isn't it? freedom. If you were an immigrant long ago, you'd come up to the uh, borders of the United States, Ellis Island here, and, and, and it would be a, a monument, a monument of hope, of, of liberty. And it's still today, it's a monument for that same freedom and, and even immigration, no matter what the government wants to say right now, it's still a monument to our, our roots in immigration. And, and it's an important place. Right there in, on Ellis Island is the, this uh, beautiful Statue of Liberty, and it proudly proclaims, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shores. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. This is the proclamation that the United States makes to the world. Freedom lives here. You don't want those people, send them here. They'll be free. And there seems to be little doubt that the, the roots of this nation is based in, in God, if not His Word, at least in principles that come from it. Even on our currency, you see, in God we trust. So it's the founding principles of the United States. They're founded on these principles of freedom, uh, freedom of conscience, the rule of justice, uh, we, we understand that the government is of the people and for the people. Uh, these are the, the founding principles. They're, they're really godly principles that, that no man rules over another, that we all are equal in the sight of God. These are godly things. And the question we're going to ask today is, could this foundation of liberty, these, these very principles that were the foundation of our government, could they be challenged one day? 
Today, we're going to look in the Bible and explore a prophecy that speaks to and about the United States. And it's, I think it's really important because, especially in the last days, we've established our timing in, in Earth's history, and, and we're near the, the end. And in these last days, the United States has a significant role in geopolitical events. It's pretty obvious the, the United States has um, some importance. And I don't know, would it surprise you if the United States was in the Bible? If the Bible talked about the United States? Yeah. I, the Bible doesn't talk about every nation. There's no mention of Tonga. Kazakhstan is not in the, the prophetic record anywhere. El Salvador isn't there. Uh, there's a lot of nations that aren't in the Bible. So why would God mention a nation? There's really one reason that the Bible talks about any uh, political area, and that's because it connects with God's people. Uh, if you go back in the beginning of the Bible, you read about a geographic location named Eden. And why do you, why do you hear about Eden? Because that's where God started everything off. That's where Adam and Eve were. And, and if you go forward a little ways, you read about Abraham, the father of the faithful. And Abraham was based, well, he started in Ur of the Chaldees, and Ur is a city in the land of Mesopotamia. And so Mesopotamia is a, a, a nation or a, a region in the world that the Bible talks about. And then you read about Babylon and uh, Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome, and all of these kingdoms are connected in some way to God's people. They're interacting with God's people in some way. The Babylon, Babylonians, they sacked Jerusalem, and they brought a bunch of Jews to Babylon in exile. And then Medo-Persia and Greece, in the same area, they were ruling over the same area that Babylon did, were both interacting with, uh, with God's people over the years. And then Rome comes into play, and we talked about these from the very beginning. We saw how prophecy mentions all of these kingdoms. And of course, it's what kind of cross that Jesus dies on? A Roman cross. So Rome is interacting with these people. It was a Roman uh, universe, really, that, that um, the disciples were walking on those streets, those Roman streets. Um, and, and all of these old extinct kingdoms well, I should say they, have a, they still have influence today. We still have Greek and Roman Latin influences in, in our world today. It's, they've, they've made a significant impact. Um, but all of these kingdoms were mentioned in the Bible. And so is the United States. And we're going to look at that. Um, and and if, you, if you think about it, the United States represents this experiment that's never really been tried before. It's a republic based on a principle of religious liberty. Now, you've had all kinds of nations throughout the, the years, and in fact, even Rome was a republic, but nobody tried to just let people have whatever religion they wanted. Religious freedom was never an option throughout the years. In, uh, and, and in America, this idea of religious liberty and liberty in general, has grown to be a, a national, I mean, an international powerhouse. In fact, in Australia, um, the, I believe it's Australian Sentinel wrote this a few years ago. Americans should admit the truth and face up to their responsibilities as the undisputed masters of the world. The fact is no country has been as dominant culturally, economically, technologically, and militarily in the history of the world 
since the Roman Empire. And, and it's true, America has a significant impact on the geopolitical landscape around the world. And the question of liberty is, uh, it, it's something the Bible deals with quite a lot. Long ago, way back in the Garden of Eden, God blessed the freedom of choice. He extended choice to His beloved children that He had just created, and they had the ability to choose God or to choose Satan. God loves liberty. He doesn't always love what we do with it, but He loves liberty. And the question is, what will we do with the, the idea of liberty here at the end of time, and what will the United States specifically do? And we've seen throughout the, the talks that we've gone through, Babylon, um, it was introduced, one of these ruling powers, it took God's people captive for 70 years. Um, then we had Medo-Persia, a nation that conquered Babylon. It was permitted to reestablish um, the, the Jewish nation under Medo-Persia's rule. And then Greece ruled for a couple hundred years with Alexander the Great. Um, and then, well, he wasn't there for a couple hundred years, but it started off really strong with him. And then came Rome, and it was course, that Roman nation that, uh, that Jesus walked in, but Rome, it, it fell apart. And uh, in, in Daniel 2 and in 7, um, we see these prophecies that build all the way to, towards Rome, and then it breaks into pieces and ten nations come. The, the feet of iron and clay in Daniel 2 and the, the, the beast that had ten horns that came from it in Daniel 7, both representing these ten small kingdoms. Um, that, that wouldn't ever stick together, Daniel promised. And then we see a little horn coming up in Daniel 7, and that little horn, it, it takes three out, and then uh, it has the, um, it, it comes after, and it comes from among those nations, those ten, and so we find that it begins after 476, right there in 538, we nailed down that point, 538 was the beginning of this new nation with Justinian um, giving a civil authority over to a church and, and basically raising the Roman Catholic Church to authority over the kings of Europe. So let's read about that prophecy just one more time. Revelation chapter 13, 1 through 4, tells us a little bit about this uh, little horn power. And we, we connected the dots between Revelation uh, 13 and Daniel 7. So this is still the little horn introduced as uh, a, a new beast in Revelation chapter 13. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. So let's pause, and uh, I want to ask you a question. Uh, we've talked about this already in a previous presentation. So in Bible prophecy, what does a beast represent? A, a kingdom or a nation and, uh, and, and just to see if you can get extra points, what does a horn represent? We, we mentioned it uh, last time. <laughs> you just flunked. No, you didn't flunk. It, 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 it represents a king or a kingdom. Um, so the, the, the beast has, um, has these ten horns, right? Um, so there's this idea of the, the beast in Daniel 7, has ten horns. It starts as the Roman nation, but splits up into ten smaller kingdoms. Um, so anyway, this, this beast in Revelation um, also represents a nation. And it's not a, an insult or an epithet or anything like that. It's just 
identifying a nation like we do today. The, um, the British are the, um, well, the, the, what is it, a bear in Russia, the eagle in the United States, um, a kiwi, the, the kiwi bird in, in uh, uh, not Australia, in New Zealand, thank you. Yeah, so there's, we, we represent nations as beasts today. All right, so keep on going in verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth was like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Uh, so that was verse 3. And verse 4 says, So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now, you might have noticed that all four of the beasts in Daniel 7 are included in aspects of this beast. In fact, Revelation 13's first beast is thought of as a composite beast. It's almost as if Revelation, um, John is, is introducing Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the Ten Kingdoms, and even the Little Horn, all in one fell swoop. That's why it has seven heads. Um, how, many, how many horns did the one horn in Daniel 7 pluck up? What's 10 minus 3? Seven, so seven heads. So every, every piece about this beast is kind of a combination of Daniel 7's prophecy. But then comes another nation in Daniel, or Revelation chapter 13. Look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So the question is, who is this second beast? What does it represent? Now, there's a few things that are different. First of all, when it comes up out of the sea, it doesn't have crowns on its head. Now, Daniel didn't, represent, didn't say anything about crowns, but Revelation adds a piece. Do you remember how we talked about prophecy enlarging and expanding? Every time that, that the Bible introduces something new, it's really rehearsing what it's already said in the past, but giving more detail. And so in Revelation 13, the first beast has, horns on it, or has uh, crowns on its horns. The second beast, does it have crowns? No, it doesn't. It has two horns, but it doesn't mention any crowns. So that's a, a, a difference between the first beast. It comes up out of, the, out of the earth, not out of the sea. Okay, so we, rehearsed, or we talked about this before. There's three major things in uh, apocalyptic prophecy. A beast represents a, a nation. And uh, do you remember what the winds represent? Strife or war between nations. What does the sea represent? People. And not just people, but multitudes of people. Nations, tribes, tongues, peoples, right? It's talking about a concentrated population. And so the first beast comes up among the nations of Europe the second beast comes up from the earth, not the sea. What's, what's different about the earth? It, it doesn't have people. It's the opposite. In fact, Revelation 12 describes a God's people as a woman, and, and God's people flee into the wilderness. And the implication of the wilderness is it's not the city. It's not where lots of people are. She goes to, to hide among the rocks and the crags and the, and the mountains. And in fact, there's a really interesting, um, uh, a little interesting verse. It says that the sea um, tried to, to, to have a flood come and devour the woman, God's people, that are running away. 
but the earth swallowed up the sea. <laughs> and so it's this, this picture of the wilderness preventing all this mob or this, this um, army from getting God's people. So if, if the sea represents people, the earth represents a, a small or diminished population. Now, you had Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. The empire of Rome came to an end in 476, and then you have this 10 other nations that were established, and by 538, Justinian hands over power to the little horn. And how long did the little horn last? Do you remember what the time period was? 1,260 years or 42 months. Well, it was 42 months, 1,260 days, or... or three and a half years, a time, times, and a half a time. And we looked at all that and we said, this can't be literally 1,260 days. This, this, it, it wouldn't work for it to be, what, six and a half years, literal years, uh, or th- I mean, sorry, three and a half literal years to fulfill all the things in this prophecy. Um, so in order for that to work, it needs to, be, it needs to be a prophetic year, I mean, a prophetic day, which a day in prophecy equals a, a year. So 1,260 years from 538, 1,260 years later is 1798. And uh, just a reminder of what we looked at before, it was was Napoleon who overturned the power of this little horn power, the Catholic Church, having civil authority over Europe in 1798 when he dethroned the Pope and also removed the, the Catholic influence from most of the courts in Europe. So let's look at Revelation 13, 11, just one more time. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. It's interesting that he has two horns like a lamb. In Revelation, the, the word lamb is used over two dozen times, and every time, with the exception of this one, it's referring to Jesus. What do you think that suggests about these two horns like a lamb? What characteristics might this new nation, this new beast, have? Oh, peace. Well, at least we know there's some principles of Christianity or Christ that are included in this nation, right? Something, is, uh, something about this nation is Christ-like, and I think that's really important to identify what this nation is. And it, like I mentioned before, it's not depicted as wearing a crown on, on its horns. And so we have... A, uh, a, a nation that has no monarch. It's not ruled by a king. It's a new kind of government. So here's what we know so far. It rises in a sparsely populated area. It's a young nation because it comes up after the first beast, which ended its power in 1798. So it's a young nation. Um, there's no monarchy, and uh, it would assume a position of worldwide power and influence because if you notice the last thing, it's It speaks like a dragon. It's got some power to it at the very end. So if you look at at these identifying marks, there's not much in the world that will fit this. You can't look to Africa. New nations weren't sprouting up right after the the, um, French Revolution in the the late 1700s. Um, You can't look to Asia or India Uh, Because what you're focusing on is a nation that impacts God's people and has these characteristics. And what nation are you left with? The United States of America. When a people realized that the Americas existed, they called it the New World. I mean, this was the place that uh, the people who were fleeing religious persecution in Europe would run 
to have freedom. And as the French Revolution was gaining strength and Napoleon was coming onto the scene, America declared its independence. And so as it struggled to gain a footing there in the late 1700s, um, establishing itself as a nation based on, on liberty, this little horn in Europe begins to collapse and is completely overturned in 1798. And America was founded on these balance of powers. The, you've got the, the uh, legislative branch and the, the executive branch that, that have equal powers and can, can keep each other in check, hopefully. That's, that's the, the goal. Um, and it was also based on these two ideas of freedom, uh, a, a free and, and uh, just civil government, free and fair civil government, and also the freedom of conscience and religion. Yet, according to the Bible, there's going to be a time that everything changes in the heart of this nation. In, in the end of Revelation 13, 11, it says it speaks like a dragon. And Revelation 12 says that that dragon is who? Satan. It's very clear. The dragon is the devil. It, it's dragon equals devil. It's not, not hard to figure that out in Revelation 12. So, this nation might hold Christ-like principles for a time, but at, at some point, it's going to speak like the dragon. And how does a nation speak? Hopefully not on Twitter. How does a nation speak? It, it speaks through laws. A nation's heart, what a nation is made up of, is displayed in its laws and how it governs and how it relates to people. And the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you set these laws up, you can say, yeah, that's, that's what the core of this nation is about. At some point, though, this peace-loving, freedom-fighting uh, <laughs> um, nation is going to turn around and, and stop, in, stop uh, enforcing freedom and start legislating principles that the devil um, would appreciate. Look at verse 12. He exercises all the authority of the first beast, that little horn power. Um, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now, this is an important, uh, important point that we'll come back to later, but uh, that, that last section, it says its deadly wound was healed. Uh, the, the, what happened in 1798 isn't going to be the end of that little horn power. But it's this second beast, the United States, that causes. What's that word cause suggest? Force, yeah. Compels might be another word. According to the Bible, this nation would grow in power and prestige and prominence to a place where it could um, use its authority to place the first nation in Revelation 13 back in its position of power. And and one day affect the freedoms of the entire world. You know, in this country, you're free to fly a plane if you have the right licenses, right? Um, and, and we trust that you won't fly it into a building. You're free to drive a car, but we trust that you won't drive it into a crowd of people. You're going to drive safely. With freedom comes responsibility. And with freedom comes risk. Those are, are things that exist. 
Um, the United States was a haven for those who worshipped God. Uh, for a, a long time, it was the place that you would go if you wanted religious liberty. But today, if you're a scientist or an academic and you believe in a six-day literal creation, do, do you find freedom? No. Your liberties are curtailed. Uh, you want to write a grant? You're going to be sidelined. Your grant probably won't be honored. You will, you'll probably not be able to advance very far in your field if you don't agree with the party line, so to speak, when it comes to some of these things that don't agree with God's Word. If you believe in saving the life of a fetus, then in many cases, in many parts of, of, the, war, of the United States, you're going to be sidelined, you're going to be ridiculed, you're going to be put down as somebody who, who is opposed to women's liberty um, or women's rights. And I think it's fair to say that this nation is coming under attack. And in a lot of ways, there's uh, the principles that we're founded on, the biblical foundation um, of, of our nation is being uh, challenged. And what will happen? What will happen to that at some point? It's not, it's not too far of a reach to suggest that at some point there's going to be a backlash. And I don't know what it's going to, what's going to cause it, but there's going to be a backlash that says, wait, we need, we need to come back to God. We need to come back to God. And, and you hear it in, in um, uh, different Protestant churches and, and different pulpits and pundits and all kinds of different people saying, we, we need to come back to righteousness. And in fact, the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. It's a, it's a logical conclusion that the nation will, at some point, try to turn back to God. But the question is, will they turn back to God based on God's Word, or will they turn back to God based on man's ideas? A good deception is always really close to the original. You, you don't get a good deception unless it looks like what it's trying to replace. And the Bible says that this nation, the United States, will use its power to elevate that first nation back to its position of prominence that it had before. And as we consider this, we find that what the Bible says in Revelation uh, and the issue at the end of time is about worship. Ultimately, an act of worship is going to be enforced. That's the, the focus that it ends up coming down to. What act of worship will that be? Revelation 13 says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the beast or the number of his name. The mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So this is a, a force situation, um, and, and it's a force to receive the mark, and, and, and if you don't receive this mark, then what's the consequence? You can't buy or sell. Now, there's a difference between the mark of the beast and the, the enforcement mechanism. It's, it's important to notice that. Um, so, if, if uh, you have the, the mark of the beast, uh, how the mark of the beast is, uh, and, and on one hand, and then how the mark of the beast is going to be enforced on the other hand, um, then dividing those things can, can help a little bit. And we're going to talk about the mark of the beast um, in our, our next session in a few minutes. Um, but it's important to, to see what's going to happen because the enforcement mechanism is, is, well, it's at hand, let's just say it that way. Um, would it be very hard for a government to enforce a law and, and, 
and use economic sanctions to make people want to comply with that law? I don't think it'd be very hard. I mean, the economic sanctions themselves aren't the mark of the beast. That's, that's something that you should keep in mind. So a, a chip or a, something under your skin or a barcode or like whatever, you know, the cashless society or credit cards or debit cards, you can just put those off to the side and say that's not the mark of the beast. But they might be used as enforcement mechanism. That's a, that's a different subject. Uh, but that's not the mark of the beast. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And I think it's important to notice that all of our surmisings about what might be the mark of the beast kind of takes our focus off of what really is. Well, like I said, we'll uncover that in just a minute. But he loves conspiracy theories. I was uh, trying to pay somebody a while back for some work that they did, and, and I, I don't have a, checking, a checkbook at home. I mean, we have a checking account, but we just don't want to buy the checks. And so we send a check from our bank account, um, or I pull out my phone, and I use Cash App or Venmo, and, and I, I was asking this, this gentleman, I said, can you take Cash App? And he said, what's Cash App? <laughs> but uh, whether it's debit cards or credit cards or Cash App or Bitcoin or whatever mechanism you might think, it, it's not going to be hard to enforce economic sanctions. I was reading today that uh, everything in the world's getting better. 25 reasons, 25 infographics why the world is getting better. Poverty is on the decline. Uh, uh, teenage childbirth is on the decline. In, uh, education is increasing, and all these different things are, are, are really good. And it's, it's nice. There's some nice, nice things in that mix. But when I look at some fundamentals, I'm kind of scared. When I look at issues of liberty, and justice and morality, I see the world on a decline. And nobody was talking about those things. I mean, it's nice that people have more money, but where's their morality? It's nice that people um, aren't having babies when they're, they're uh, teenagers, but what's the reason for that? Um, what's behind that? Is it always a good thing that, um, that we end up looking at those numbers? Um, or, or is there something more important something more significant. Um, the issues of freedom and liberty, I think, are, are issues that we don't hold as dear as we used to. Revelation 13, 15 goes further and says, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So not only will there be economic sanctions if you don't receive the mark of the beast, but the ultimate conclusion is that there's going to be a death decree. And it's been this way throughout history. Does it surprise you that a, a, an organization that's focused on religion would, when given the opportunity and the means, enforce that by a death decree? Does that, make, does that surprise you at all? I mean, look around you. In the world, do we see religious organizations with means and opportunity enforcing their religion by the death decree? Abs absolutely. It's, it's been that way throughout all history, and, and it's not going to change as long as people are following a, a system of religion that is not in line with God's ideal of liberty and justice. And God's people have a decision to make. Will you worship God, or will you worship this false system, a, a counterfeit that looks maybe like the, the real thing, but 
is really man's substitute for God, uh, for God's law. And we've seen this in the Bible before. It's not a new thing. The king of Babylon dreamed this dream. It was a dream about um, this, be, uh, this image with different metals, and the, the head was made of what? Gold. And, and so then what does he do? He goes out and he defies the principles of the dream, and he makes an entire image out of gold and says, now bow down and worship me. Uh, essentially, that's his idea. And, and uh, then the, the people were assembled, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, when the band starts to play, everybody bow down and worship the statue. And, and the band started to play, and the crowd bows down, and then there's three guys that stay standing, three guys that refuse to follow the crowd. And, and some people say, these three Hebrew slaves, they've defied you. And Nebuchadnezzar was angry, and he, he gives them an opportunity. And their response, when he says, one more chance, the band will play, you bow down or you die, and you know what they say? O king, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. And this is Daniel 3, by the way. We want you to know that our God is able to save us out of your fiery furnace. I mean, he threatened them with death, and they're saying, God's able to, to save us from death. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down and worship you even if he doesn't. They had set God's uh, obedience to God's law as a standard in their heart that would not be removed. And when they got to the point where that was challenged, they were able to stand still because way back before they had said, never will we depart from obedience to God. The king was furious. He had them thrown into this furnace that was likely a thousand degrees. I mean, it was, it was designed for baking uh, the, the bricks that were used in, in making all of King Nebuchadnezzar's stuff. And, and so probably a thousand degrees, white hot, super hot. I mean, it killed the people that threw them in. And, and what happens to, to these three men? And Nebuchadnezzar looks to see their, their charred remains in the middle of this fire and what does he see? Not three men, but four men walking around. And he, he says, I thought we threw three men in, but I see four men walking around. And the fourth is like the son of the gods. Literally, the son of God. And it was. It was the son of God. It was Jesus walking there in the middle of that furnace with those three men. I bet they were having a better time in the furnace than Nebuchadnezzar was having outside of the furnace. And in fact, when Nebuchadnezzar said, come on out, I want to I figure out what's going on, they probably weren't that excited about going out. But Jesus, I'm sure, said, you know, go back, you're my witnesses. These three faithful young men stood for God, and God's Son stood with them. We have a, a similar privilege. We're here down at the very end of time. And we can choose today to stand for God. And when the time comes and the heat is the hottest and, and we have the biggest challenge to face, a death penalty for obedience, we can still stand. And, and you might think, I'm not really that strong. My courage is pretty small. That's okay. You don't need to be strong. And you don't need to be courageous. That's God's job. Jesus is the one who's able. All the way down through the years, Jesus has been the one that's able. When, when the Israelites were facing a big mountain of water in front of them, God was able to take that out of their way, wasn't he? When um, the uh, armies were up against Israel, 
the best thing for them to do was what he told Jehoshaphat to do. He said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That, that's the key. Do we trust in Jesus or do we trust in our own wisdom and our own strength? When Jesus was uh, around, there was deaf people and there were blind people and there were lame people and God was, God was strong enough to deal with those things. Whatever trials we may face, we can know that Jesus is able and that He's going to return one day. Even if we are killed for standing for the right, even if we know that Jesus will return and He'll still have the final victory, the resurrection will, won't be very far away. The, in your handout, I've added another verse that I don't have in my presentation. It's Psalms 91. And uh, it's a, just a, a beautiful I'm not sure if I put it in here, if I put it in the, in the, in the next one, but it's a, a beautiful um, psalm about deliverance. And God says, even if 10,000 fall at your left hand and 10,000 at your right hand, it will not come nigh you. It's not going to come near you because God is your deliverer. Praise God. Will you choose to stand with God today?